0: Marking Psalm number 170, we'll stand and sing that at the proper time in just a little while as we together draw the lesson to a close. Certainly how blessed and privileged we are this morning to be able to gather like this, though perhaps some have traveled somewhat treacherous roads to be here. Nonetheless, how remarkably complimentary it is of our congregation that we have desired in large number to meet together today, understanding the privilege and the importance of worship And to gather together on occasions like this to edify and exalt the name of god and of course to encourage and lift up each other we are after all those of like precious faith 2 peter 1 verse 1 and we look forward to that beautiful time when we can gather around the throne of god forever and there understand the blessedness of eternity with him as you may have noted in the reading this morning drawn from the 26th verse of james chapter 1 we have a rather bold and rather direct statement made about a certain person's religion. In fact, it is there directly and concretely asserted that this man's religion is vain. It is with regard to that statement I would ask each of us to give some thought to what the Holy Spirit shared with us in that regard this morning. Maybe some introductory thoughts will perhaps move us in the direction of deeper consideration. But might I suggest that each of us and I feel sure I speak without any hesitancy of being mistaken, none of us take it very lightly or happily when another confronts us and asserts that we are in essence wrong about something, or perhaps that we are called hypocrites. One of the words that can so easily perhaps bring up a defensive barrier in us is when someone looks at you or me and says, you are a hypocrite. You do not behave in the way you claim. You do not live as you purport to. You do not, in fact, behave in the manner in which you seem to preach. None of us like directly to be called that, I'm sure. In fact, some of those thoughts I've listed for your consideration would be that certainly hurts deeply when the person mistakenly says that of us. When you and I, in fact, do live as we attempt and yet someone, for whatever reason, maybe they're not knowledgeable of all the facts, maybe they have taken just a small amount of information and blown it into far more than what it was, but when the facts do not meet that, that certainly hurts. However, I would submit even when the person's correct, it hurts our conscience. For we know that they're telling us what really is the truth. And they're telling us what we need to hear, but sometimes it's a hard pill to swallow, isn't it? It would, in fact, perhaps be noted this morning in terms of hypocrisy. I would ask you to read again verse 26 of James 1. Listen to how directly the Holy Spirit makes this statement. If any man among you seem to be religious and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain." Yes, I suspect it might be a bit difficult to pin a simpler statement in English than that. Here's an individual who has the claim to be religious. He perhaps has made the claim before others. Maybe he attends some kind of religious service. Maybe he has, in fact, some loyalty and allegiance to the Bible. Despite any or despite all of that, the Holy Spirit says, this man who makes that claim, or maybe he even believes it in his heart, if he doesn't bridle his tongue, that man's religion is vain. That's a rather simple conclusion, isn't it, for what the Holy Spirit has asserted. I would invite each of you to consider with me this morning, and all of us certainly stand beneath the brunt of a statement like this, as we do any other statement of the Holy Holy Bible. How does your speech and mine correlate to what we claim to be in terms of religious? Do they match or do they not? Do we bridle our tongue as we should? Do we control and withhold it as the Holy Spirit demands? Or in essence, are we hypocritical? One of the things we will do as the lesson goes onward is to look a little bit more closely at some of the terms that are therein appearing. This man's religion is vain. What does it mean to say it's vain? Perhaps with that little consideration of any further delay. Let us turn our attention to look more carefully at that context and see if we can appreciate more directly some of what is being asserted to us. I thought we'd do that by looking at the way in which that verse reads in three translations just to make certain that we do not miss the point behind it. The King James translation we heard read a moment ago by Brother Greg and I've also just recently read it but let's also note it yet again. If any man among you Seem to be religious, and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Following that, I've also listed for your consideration the American Standard rendering of that same verse. If any man thinketh himself to be religious, while he bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his heart, this man's religion is vain. You'll notice a rather large similarity between those two, but then finally the English Standard Version. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. I might ask us as we keep in mind the basic thrust of all of those presentations, each of them points rather directly to that scene we used to start the lesson. A person thinks he's religious, perhaps has a high evaluation of himself, labeling, categorizing, believing himself to be religious. But then the Holy Spirit comes directly and says, if he doesn't bridle his tongue, his religion is worthless, it's vain, it's useless. And so it is with regard to that matter we each, no doubt, can feel challenged by. Let's then move to consider what that verse says to us and for us. What about bridling the tongue? On the next slide, I have listed for you some thoughts about the text itself. Please give some thought to those aspects as we perhaps build a foundation for considering it more deeply. There near the top, you'll notice this estimation of oneself is set before us. We each have some particular belief about what we are, what we claim to be, and the type of individual we are at the most basic level. I have no doubt all of us, in the sound of my voice, consider ourselves in some way religious. Perhaps some more deeply committed than others, but all of us have this inner feeling, a belief, that we are striving to be rather deeply pious, spiritual, and religious. It is to be noted as that statement is made, the Holy Spirit said this, One who thinks himself to be religious but does not bridle his tongue, deceives himself. All three of those translations that we read made use of that statement. Notice the easiness with which one can deceive himself. And it is important to notice that that word himself, the King James read it, deceiveth his own heart, That's a reflexive kind of presentation in Greek. It means the person does it to himself. God doesn't deceive him. Others don't, in fact, proceed to deceive him. He deceives himself. You and I can see, then, we can well deceive ourselves with regard to our language if we aren't careful. We may think ourselves religious, perhaps overlook some of the language we tend to use, and all the while believe we're religious. We might well, however, be deceiving ourselves because that's not the only thing the Holy Spirit said. That word bridle, perhaps you and I are familiar with what perhaps we used to put on or say put on mule, a set of bridles. That word bridle here literally means to hold in check. It means to have exerted a self-control over that speech or language, the tongue as it is here referenced. To bridle one's tongue the second thing the Holy Spirit asserted was that one who thinks himself religious but does not bridle his tongue furthermore is stated to be one whose religion is vain and there's the statement that probably would wreak our attention more so than some other passages here's the Holy Spirit directly asserting you're a hypocrite if you claim to be religious, but yet you do not bridle your tongue. Those are strong words, aren't they? It's a powerful message. It's no wonder that the book of James in its five chapters is so very to the point. In fact, among the 27 books of the New Testament, few would rank higher than it in terms of packing the powerful punch in a very few words. Here we find that that person who believes that his life is religious, but doesn't bridle his tongue. His religion is said to be vain. You'll note the translation of words like that are useless and worthless is what the King James word there means. Who among us would like to be told, friend, your religion is useless. Friend, your religion's worthless. It doesn't have any bearing or meaning or basic thrust behind it. And yet the very person who believes himself religious but doesn't bridle his tongue falls in this category near the bottom of that screen might we emphasize then for each of us the importance of bridling the tongue how well do you and how well do I control our tongue when situations arise day by day in life are we skilled enough, mature enough in faith to control our speech, to bridle our language and not allow it to lead us to say things that we shouldn't say sometimes we can develop a habit And we often, when we do that, thus use a word and we don't really even think about it. We've used it in the past. Nothing bad happened. I'll use it again. It's just a bad habit. Do we allow ourselves to fall in that situation? Perhaps our friends are so apt to use words and to fit in to be like them. We'll use it too. Maybe we should be cautious and exceedingly careful. For if we're claiming to be religious, but we don't bridle our tongue, we in fact are living a vain religion. A religion that's useless. The book of James, as you might well remember, in fact, has an extensive discussion of the importance of bridling the tongue. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, we have a whole host of ideas about controlling the speech and the power that is behind it. Some of the terms and ideas in those verses are very familiar to each of us. In fact, think about how small the tongue is. In terms of the overall comparison to the size of the body, the tongue's very little, isn't it? It's far smaller than, say, the brain or the heart, the arms, the legs, the feet, the hands, anything. But yet in verses 3, 4, and 5 of James chapter 3, we're reminded that think about how we can use bits in a horse's mouth. And though those bits are small, we can turn that horse or mule about and have it do whatever we wish. The smallness of that bit had a great impact on the movement of that animal. Similarly, with regard to a ship or a vessel, the helm, the rudder, if you please, is so very small, but yet the steersman or the governor can use that to guide that ship wherever it wants to go. So too, in verse 5, the text reads like this, Even so the tongue is a little member, and boasteth great things. Behold, how great a matter! a little fire kindleth. Isn't it amazing then to contemplate what can be wrought by your tongue and mine? What impact, either for good or for evil, can be wrought by our language and our speech? It's a fair thing then to notice the power of that word in verse 26. Religion is vain if it doesn't lead to us restricting and controlling and bridling our tongue. It should be our goal for the remainder of our lesson to more carefully consider the bridling of the tongue. How is it done? In what way should it be brought about? And to what end should we see its consequence? It perhaps is fair to notice that in this very verse we are reminded a person's religion should be a transforming kind of religion. It should be a religion that impacts and makes demands on the life. Let it be noted up front. If religion is not transforming of life if it doesn't make demands of the person to alter his or her behavior to lead it into ways more pious and godly that religion is useless it's empty it's powerless And it is vain but notice the religion that God has set forth is far from anything like that it makes demands basically of every avenue of life what one should think how one should speak what one should be involved in and doing. And the same is true in regard to the tongue, isn't it? This religion that is here classified as vain is a powerless one. That person, though he believed he was religious, was involved in a religion that made no demands, or at least he was insufficient to do it, to even bring about the bridling of his tongue. May your religion and mine never be that weak. May it never be that powerless. May it never be that inadequate. But rather, let it be transforming of our speech and all the other avenues of life, so that in every part, we can be that shining and brilliant example for the cause of the master. Might we note furthermore, upon that slide that's before us, some of the things that we should remember about that transforming character of religion. We mentioned earlier about language that we sometimes might speak in habit. Have you been in a position to where maybe either you or you witnessed someone else who developed the ability and the likeness to speak in a certain way because it was a popular way to speak? Others, in fact, found it funny or cute, or they found that you were a part of their group when you spoke like them. And so it was that in time, by habit, you learned to speak often that way. Listen to the words of Jesus in Luke 9.23. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. It is not a matter of popularity or a matter ultimately to be pleasing before God of simply doing that which others find to be acceptable. Jesus said it must start with denying oneself. It's not about me, it's about him. It's about pleasing Him, living in the way He desires, and that includes the way that we talk. Later on in the same New Testament, we notice in Mark 8, verses 36 and 37, that this, though it occurred somewhat later in the Lord's ministry, we find Him again reminding us about the ultimate perspective on things that are important. He says, what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? We each know the answer to that question. In rightness, there is nothing worth more than the soul. We should thus live by virtue of language in such a way that God would stamp his approval upon what we say. What thus ought to be some things we should be very careful of, language that we should be very interested to remove. In the words that follow, I've listed a few things that we should be aware of. Some time back, in fact, it's been about two years ago now, we looked at a lesson that reminded us of some of the things concerning our language. However, things change, and we at times needed to be reminded of some of the matters that are so powerful with regard to language. And that's the reason I thought it worthwhile to look at some of those from a different perspective than we did then. For example, consider the first one. There are many words in our world that are just simply and straightforwardly ugly. Their connotation is mean and ugly. What is behind them is profane or vulgar. And those who claim to speak such, believe it or not, can at times think that they're being religious. They do not perceive that the statements of Scripture impact the way that they talk. Somehow, they seem to believe that the way they speak on Sunday morning can very well be far removed from the way they speak tuesday afternoon and god has no problem with that they're mistaken again the sacred writer didn't say on, only on sunday must one's language be like this he didn't specify any day of the week it happens for any day doesn't it any man who thinks himself religious but yet does not bridle his tongue deceives himself and that man's religion is vain james one twenty six. Consider, thus, some of the passages that affirm the greatness of that thought. I've listed for your consideration Ephesians 4.29. so near the close of that fourth chapter of the Ephesian letter, Paul said, "...let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers." Let us hear that again. How much, Paul, corrupt communication am I allowed to speak? He said, let no corrupt communication. I can't then expect to be a favorable child of God, or a person desirous of gleaning his approval in by virtue of my speech if I'm using vulgar, profane, or ugly language. Thus, I should put that from me. If habits have developed the use of that constantly, it will take effort to remove it, but it is so worth it. To develop the ability to speak wholesomely soundly wisely and goodly that kind of language is such a blessing not only to oneself but to all others who have the privilege to hear it in the days of old in Proverbs 10 verses 31 and 32 we are reminded on that occasion uh, about how much God hates this kind of ugly profane vulgar language There we're told that the lips of the wicked speak forwardness. That word forwardness means perverseness. It is the very word might be used to describe the kind of ugly language we're talking about. There it says God has abomination for that. May we thus never look lightly upon thinking it's cute to talk like that. It's dirty and it's ugly. Young people especially. I well remember what high school can be like. Language can often be sordid, to say the least. Do not give in to it. It is not something God finds pleasing, and you will, in fact, have a bad conscience if your conscience has been rightly trained after you talk like that. It will not be a pleasant experience. Walk the high road of godliness and live that which he finds pleasing. You will, in the end, be blessed. All of us, though, who are older, still may be in workplaces where there are people who talk ugly, and they often laugh about it and have a big joke around the coffee pot concerning it. It's not funny. This kind of language doesn't do anything but bring down the very character of those who are speaking it, for they are reflecting more on their behavior and their basic heart than anything else. May we understand that God expects our, our language to be far more wholesome than that. In addition to matters like that, notice one other comment I thought worthy to make. About that word corrupt when Paul wrote by inspiration that they were to let no corrupt communication proceed out of their mouth that word corrupt again from its original language means to be rotten it means to be bad or worthless or putrid that's the kind of language Paul said let none of it proceed from your mouth where do you and I stand today then if we claim to be religious then our language should not be using corruptness We should not be using perverseness or forwardness. That, however, isn't the only thing that should be put away from our language. What else should be removed from us? May I submit that the Bible has other thoughts that challenge us in that regard and in that way. There are words in the English language that can be used in an an acceptable way. Words, in fact, that may, in fact, have a degree of wholesomeness or at least reasonableness behind it. But those same words can also be used in other ways that are insinuating of evil. There are often ugliness behind it. We each can perhaps think of words like that. Have you ever had your child to come home from school and say, Dad or Mom, can I use this word? And sometimes you have a hard time answering because you don't know the context in which the child first heard it that day. There are some words that can be used in a good way. But then if used otherwise in slang ways that our culture has come to accept it, it can mean something bad. In fact, it may often have sexual overtones behind it. And in that kind of way, we never want our children to speak like that. So I've listed for you some thoughts that we should seek to eliminate those words when when they're used in a bad way. To be used rightly, there's no problem with them but in those contexts in which they're used in an ugly fashion, we should seek to not speak like that. For example, in Psalm 34, verse 13, the psalmist in the days of old begged and pleaded with God to keep a a tongue that's bad far from me, a deceitful tongue far from me, a tongue of evil far from me. We notice, however, further on in Scriptures, In Matthew 12, verses 36 and 37, that Jesus on that occasion uttered this rather remarkable warning. He said that each one shall give account thereof in the day of judgment for the idle words spoken. For the idle ones. And he went on the next verse to assert that in fact in terms of judgment, by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Isn't it the case that if idle words will be brought before the judgment bar of God, and we'll have to give account for speaking them, what, then, will be the case concerning words that had evil overtones or overtones that were sexually bad and ugly? Again, we can see those have no place in our language either. I have listed just two examples among many others you can probably think of. As you think about, again, proper ways those can be used, And then there are ways that our society now uses them in an ugly way. We should never seek to use them in the way that's ugly. But in addition to those examples, consider yet another. We should also seek to eliminate any word or words that in fact insult in any way the divine realm of God's creation. Either him, any other element of divinity, or anything that he has explicitly and purposefully created and made. In fact, several verses of the Bible challenge us in that regard. And isn't it amazing that so many of the ugly curse words are based in one way or another on the very existence of either God or His Son Christ or something that they have fashioned or made. Explicitly note with me Exodus 20 verse 7. Admittedly, this was in the days of the law of Moses, but how strongly the element rings in our ears even to this day. It was therein told the ancient people of Israel, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. That was the third of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not. We understand what it meant when he said, Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery. This commandment was on the same plane and on the same par with them. Their language was that important and they were never to take the name of God in vain. Notice as that verse ended, he said, God will not hold him guiltless. Those two negatives tell us God will thus hold that person guilty who thus took his name in vain back at that time. As we ponder about the character of other parts of the Bible, in Leviticus 19.12, an element of that was restated again. Those who swore on the name of God, he didn't look upon that lightly if they took the swear lightly. In the New Testament, in verse 8 of Colossians chapter 3, the inspired apostle said in rather strong language, put away filthy communication from your mouth. Among those matters that they were to mortify or put to death, filthy communication was one of them. You see, there were those in that first century church in Colossae that apparently were dealing with improper language too, just like some in our day deal with it. And God's word too that was put it away from you. Today, the same word then is given to us if we are battling with the same idea. As one seeks to put away filthy communication, isn't it sad to ponder how flippantly, trivially, and disrespectfully the name of God or certain divine things can be referenced it would seem that our culture has made a mastery of taking divine things and softening it in some way and thus putting it into our language to be easily and often used one example is the word gosh that's nothing but a softening of the word God and when we thus flippantly use that in language without any recourse or reference to God we have erred because we have made a flippant, disrespectful reference to the name of God. Other examples could be listed by by the many. But as you think about that one particularly on the screen, I have coupled it with two others. It's not uncommon these days to hear the name Jesus taken as a curse word. Someone has done something. Maybe they've caught their hand in a door, and the door's gotten slammed on it the first word that they seem to speak by exclamation is Jesus. Without any thought about the very name of the Son of God, it's just an interjection exclaimed in that moment of haste and hurriedness. Such is a bad thing. Jesus is the only begotten Son of God, John 3.16. And we're told in Philippians 2, verses 5-11, through 11, that God gave him a name to he exalted above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven, of things in earth, of things under the earth, and at the name of Jesus, every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2, verses 10 and 11. Thus, we shouldn't be caught using flippantly the name of the one who died at Calvary for us. That kind of idea challenges, again, so many of us because we live in a world where that is not the common way in which things are perceived. That, however, isn't all either. You'll notice near the bottom of that slide one other w- wor- series of words that seems to have such a common role to play is what I call condemnations. We've studied in the past in our Bible study classes that that word damn, D-A-M-N, and in the New Testament, King James uses that more than once. As for instance, in Mark sixteen sixteen, that word literally means to condemn but yet, when words like that are used in a profane or cursing fashion, and we each can imagine what the language is like, one person looks to another and says, "Blank you, with that being the word in place, they are condemning that person in their language to an eternity in hell. Friend, nobody but God can do that. I can't do that, nor can any other human. Thus, when that kind of statement is made, we are taking to ourselves what rightly belongs only to God himself, to an attribute of divinity. We can't judge anyone and condemn them to hell like that. We have every right to use the scriptures and assert to them if their ways continue in sin that God asserts that judgment will be theirs. But it's not our prerogative based on something they've done to me or something that is a part of the way that they live to condemn them to hell. They shall stand before their God and give answer for that by virtue of their sinfulness. Perhaps in terms of those condemnations, that brings us to the final example on that slide, swearing. Swearing, S-W-E-A-R-I-N-G. It is interesting to think of how often oaths find their way into the language, especially sometimes of those who are younger. It seems to be a habit to desire to speak in terms of oaths and affirmations, swearing, if you please. Near the bottom of that screen, there are two passages that we ought never forget relative to that subject. One of them again is in the book of James. Are you gaining the impression that James had a keen idea of desiring to improve the language of those to whom he was writing? That they might come to appreciate more clearly the error of some language that they had been using and that it might improve dramatically. In verse 12 of the last chapter in James, James chapter 5, listen to this subject concerning swearing. But above all things, my brethren, swear not, neither by heaven, neither by the earth, neither by any other oath, but let your yea be yea, and your nay, nay, lest you fall into condemnation. There was a text that reminded them of that day and us today as well. But above all things, my brethren, verse 12, swear not. When you and I thus think about coupling our statements by thinking we have to make an oath upon something or upon someone, we've again erred, we've made a mistake. My yes ought to be sufficient and my no should be sufficient. He said, let your yea be yea and your nay nay. If I live as the I should live, you ought not need me to swear or make oaths or affirm that which I say ought to be sufficient to affirm my desire to bring about that which I've promised. In that first century era, as we learn in that sister passage in Matthew chapter 5, it was the common case of the Jews that they felt it incumbent upon them to swear on something, perhaps on the temple perhaps on the altar that was in the temple, perhaps on some other manifestation such as the city of Jerusalem. And they found that a part of their language to utter those kinds of swearing so that there would be an affirmation concerning what they had promised. Jesus said, you ought not need that. And in fact, to swear on the temple, or the gold in it, or the altar, those things belong to God. You have no business in terms of thinking that you have control over them and thus can swear by them. Has anything changed for you and me today? Should it not still be the case that our language by the lives we live ought to be sufficient? We should The need to swear on our mother's grave or upon our house where we live. We don't have ultimate control over those things. The swearing enters into the regime of being wrong, doesn't it? Might we appreciate in regard to all of that, Our society can still find other ways to seemingly soften the matter of swearing. I've listed at the bottom of the screen maybe one example you may have encountered or heard when someone uses that as an adjective. And they do so in such a way to affirm, in essence, a kind of behavior or an affirmation that, again, ought to be completely needless. We should be cautious about our language. Very cautious. For again, our religion may well be nothing more than what's vain based on what we've learned so far. I would submit to you one final brief matter. We have learned also that we should strive to omit or eliminate from our language those things that ascribe things that belong to God of something else. Again, that may sound similar to what we've seen before, but it's nonetheless a bit different. To say it again, when there are certain attributes or certain kinds of behavior that belong to God and are told in the Scriptures to be given to Him, but yet we give it to other things or other people, then we have made a mistake. One of them has to do with the element of what we, what we should say is reverence. Should another human being ever be reverenced in the sense of in essence falling prostrate before them bowing to them worshiping them lifting them up if you please on the level of even God and yet when one considers the way certain words in our language are used for instance the word all aw, a w e what does that word mean if you consult a dictionary you'll find that that word means a mixed feeling of reverence, fear, and wonder. And thus, when we think about using that word, how often is the word awesome used in a way that then seems not to at all match this? We might well refer to a basketball player who just made an awesome play. Really? Was it worthy of me worshiping him or the play he made? Or we perhaps hear about a, thunderstorm that was an awesome thunderstorm. Really? Is a thunderstorm worthy of being worshipped? Is a thunderstorm worthy of being honored in that regard? Of course not. I would submit that's one of those words that our language, by the way society uses it, is turning it into something very different than what it once was. Again, all has to do with a mixed feeling of reverence, fear, and wonder. Jehovah God is awesome. In fact, we could easily sing songs praising his awesomeness. But friend, I'm not awesome. No basketball player is awesome. No football player is awesome. No other matter in that regard is awesome. May we watch things like that in our language, appreciating the thoroughness of it, and understanding that we may well be bordering on using our language wrongly. Perhaps near the close of that slide, we come to one final admonition. Just because society uses language in a certain way doesn't mean that you and I should find that approving. Again, the book of James. We're seeing time and again how that James had in mind some things his readers needed to know. In chapter 4, verse 4, he said this, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. And with that, we might well come near the close of our lesson by reminding ourselves of the marvelous prophecy of Zephaniah in the days of old. In Zephaniah 3, verse 9, there was the clear-cut prophecy about a time when a pure language would be present. A pure language, and that's the way the Hebrew reads it. May you and I be a people of a pure language. A people whose religion is genuine, real, and true, so that it is not vain in light of the promise of James 1.26. As we close this lesson this morning, we have seen then that it's a penetrating and piercing thing to consider our language. It's a tempting thing to speak in ways that we shouldn't, and the devil will ensure that it's always that way. We'll be surrounded by those, and we'll be tempted to talk like them, to speak like them, to gain their approval by the way that we talk. But may we remember that if this man thinketh he's religious, But bridleth not his tongue, he deceiveth himself, and his religion is vain. Today, the gospel call of invitation is extended to each of us as we contemplate the grandeur of molding our language in the way that God would have it. We find that we need to believe with all of our heart that Jesus is the Son of God, to repent of our sins, to confess his lovely name as the Son of God, and to be baptized for the remission of our sins. Let it be noted that among those sins that baptism will forgive are errors in language. If you've never become a Christian, when you're baptized in accordance to the Bible, God will wipe away all those errors in language and sins that have come with it. If you have become a Christian, but maybe you have again allowed yourself to begin to speak in ways that you would never have thought of not perhaps too many months back, come back to that first love. Let others know of your intent to have a pure language and to speak in a way that's genuine and real. If today we could be of assistance to anyone in these matters, we'd be happy to be of help in whatever way we could while together we stand and while we sing.